This is part of a two-tape talk by Joel, titled, Practices of the Night, Part 1, Spiritual Interpretation of Dreams, recorded April 19, 1998, at the Center for Sacred Sciences in Eugene, Oregon. So this morning I'm going to give a Part 1 of uh, two talks about Practices of the Night. Uh, most people aren't aware that you can do spiritual practice at night and you can also, as I said earlier, um, pay attention to your dreams and get tremendous uh, benefit from that. So the first part of this, today's talk, is going to be about the spiritual interpretation of dreams. And then next Sunday we'll talk about meditation uh, in the dream state and in, during sleep. So earlier I asked you to name the most important event or events of your life. And people said things like, what, birth of your daughter, uh, marriage, um, passing, milestones, sickness and illness, life-threatening illness, things like that. But nobody mentioned anything that happened during a dream, a dream event, which is kind of interesting. In our materialist culture, generally, people ignore their dreams, totally. They ignore their dreams because, if, from a materialist point of view, dreams are just subjective. And being subjective, they aren't real. Only objective things are real. And so only objective things have value. So dreams are just subjective and they have no real value. So most people in this culture totally ignore their dreams, their dream life. And if we uh, look at that view of dreams in the perspective of humanity as a whole, all the cultures that have come before us and that still surround us, that view is bizarre, if not pathological. That view means that really virtually a third of your life, the time you're sleeping, has no value except maybe some sort of physical recuperative function. But no other culture besides ours has ever viewed uh, sleep and, and dreams in that way. In sacred societies, dreams are uh, very important, and very often they will be included in a catalog of important events in your life. If you want to read, for instance, uh, Black Elk Speaks, his Lakota Sioux, the most important event in his life was a dream that he had the most important event, and the whole book is about really this dream and its manifestation in waking life. Dreams have been regarded as particularly important by seekers pursuing a mystical path within these sacred cultures and traditions. And if you read through the biographies of mystics uh, from different cultures and different traditions, you'll find very often uh, part of the uh, events recounted are dream events things that happened in dreams. For instance, uh, Socrates, uh, while he was awaiting his execution, he was uh, condemned for corrupting the youth of Athens, and he was uh, condemned to drink poison. And apparently in those days, you didn't, you didn't know when the guy was going to show up with the hemlock that you had to drink. And he was talking to some friends, and they were concerned that they have enough time to uh, open a whole discussion about uh, death and so forth. And he said, oh yes, he said, he had this dream in which I thought a woman came to me, 
handsome and well-grown and dressed in white. She called to me and said, Socrates, on the third day you will reach fertile Pythia. And he interpreted this to mean that he had two more days left. They were going to come on the third day. Fertile Pythia was a symbol for death. So that's when he was going to reach death. So here he's just recounting a dream that he takes uh, as being significant, uh, significant enough to plan his life around. The Christian and Jewish scriptures, of course, are full of dreams. If you've ever read the Bible, both the Old Testament and the New Testament are just full of dreams. Every, everywhere you look, people are having dreams, prophetic dreams, God's warning them about things and so forth. And Jewish and Christian mystics have taken dreams uh, very seriously. Here's what St. Anthony the Great, a Christian mystic, said. Man alone is capable of communion with God. For to man alone among the living creatures does God speak at night through dreams, and by day through the intellect. Before Buddha's awakening under the Bodhi tree, uh, he had five great dreams, which predicted his awakening, his teaching the Dharma, the fact he'd teach it to all classes of people, uh, the fact that he would receive adulation and uh, glory and so forth, but it wouldn't uh, affect him. He would be detached from it all. So this was a part of the whole story of the Buddha's uh, spiritual path and awakening. The foundational sutras of Kashmir Shaivism, which is uh, one of the major Indian schools, Hindu schools, uh, were revealed to their founder, Asugupata, in a dream. So a whole tradition comes from a dream. In this case, the whole tradition uh, has had its uh, seed, its birth in a dream. So why do mystics value dreams so much? Well, uh, Ibn Arabi, a great uh, Sufi, speaks probably for all mystics when he says, Sleep is a state in which the servant passes from the witnessing of the world of sense perception to the world of the barzakh, which is the most perfect world since it is the root of the origin of the cosmos. It possesses true existence and controlling rule in all affairs. So what is this world of the barzakh? That's a technical Sufi term or Arabic term. Well, roughly, we could translate uh, barzakh in modern terminology as the realm of the archetypes. And we will be talking more about that later. But... It's important to realize that not all dreams have spiritual significance. And this has been recognized as well in various traditions. For example, the Christian Saint Diodocus distinguishes between divine and demonic dreams. And here's what he says. The dreams which appear to the soul through God's love are unerring criteria of its health. Let's just stop there from him because this is very interesting. You, you can tell uh, in a certain sense your spiritual state by the kinds of dreams you're having in an unerring way, he says. Such dreams do not change from one shape to another. They do not shock our inward sense, resound with laughter, or suddenly become threatening. But with great gentleness, they approach the soul and fill it with spiritual gladness. As a result, even after the body has woken up, the soul longs to recapture the joy given, it, given to it by the dream. 
Demonic fantasies, however, are just the opposite. They do not keep the same shape or maintain a constant form for long. So, if we want to interpret this a little bit, what he's saying is that uh, spiritual dreams, dreams with spiritual significance, tend to be clearer, tend to be steady, and tend to be joyful or even awesome, whereas what he calls demonic dreams, or we might just say mundane dreams, tend to be very jumbled, confused, uh, they shift around, they're threatening, they can have all these murky, mysterious elements in them. Now, if we compare that to uh, a distinction made in the Tibetan tradition, we'll see actually it's quite similar. The Tibetans distinguish between what they call karmic dreams and clarity dreams. And in my opinion, it's a little bit more sophisticated. But they say karmic dreams are produced by karmic traces left over from events that happened in previous lives or childhood experiences or recent events that made vivid impressions on us. And this is actually kind of interesting because that, especially the childhood experiences is quite close to modern psychology. A lot of the dream material comes from childhood traumas and so forth. So uh, these karmic dreams we might call just mundane or ordinary dreams. These are the kind of dreams most people have most of the time at night. You know, you wake up and you say, what was that about? You vaguely remember it. And uh, it's uh, full of a bunch of weird events and um, it doesn't impress you very much. Clarity dreams, however, come from the clarity of mind, which naturally develops as a result of doing spiritual practices. If you are a uh, deep, serious, disciplined meditator, and particularly if you're meditating in depth for extended periods of time, your dreams will naturally start to change. And uh, we might call these spiritual dreams. And on a spiritual path, you will notice more frequently you will start having dreams with spiritual significance, and the dreams themselves will become clearer. The, the significance of the dream will become more obvious to you. So why would, should this be the case, though? Why do your dreams change on a spiritual path? Well, different dreams access different levels of consciousness, we might say. Now, let me uh, give a little uh, caveat here. One of the tasks of a new worldview suited to our scientific culture, but a spiritual worldview, will be to develop a full-fledged, full-blown spiritual psychology. I personally don't know of any that are uh, uh, really totally satisfying. So what I'm going to uh, suggest here is a metaphor or an analogy for the psyche. Uh, and I think it's a workable one, and it certainly would be serviceable, uh, a way to look at what's going on on a spiritual path. So I've drawn this out on a, uh, on a chalkboard here. Could you give me a hand and just lay that over there? Can everybody see that okay? What this represents here, uh, my primitive drawing skills, draftsman skills, are trying to represent, is the image of a pond. And if you think of the, the, the ordinary, everyday waking mind, a surface mind, as a pond, like a very still pond, that reflects things around it. Clouds, trees, animals on the banks, and so forth. All these sensory, sensory world phenomena. 
Just feel that for a minute. Here you are, you're sitting here, and all the stuff around you is just being reflected on the surface of this pond, on your mind. By the way, from a spiritual point of view, uh, the analogy breaks down here because a pond, there are things out there that are being reflected in the pond. From a mystical point of view, there's nothing out there. It's just the reflections. But we'll get into more of that next Sunday, actually. Now, just below the surface of this pond, we get to level one of the psyche, if we like. Level one is the ego level. And what's contained in the ego level are our everyday conscious thoughts, fantasies, memories, images that come up. If you just shift your attention a little bit and just sort of look inside a little bit, uh, you see, you know, this, this buzzing chatter going on and flashes of things come through your mind all day long. You know what I mean? That's the normal ego level of our psyche. And now we're following, by the way, Jung here a little bit, because although I don't think Jung has all the answers or has a really complete view, I think he's gone the farthest uh, in, in uh, coming up with a spiritual psychology. And again, I think it's certainly workable, at least for our purposes, in terms of dream analysis and dream interpretation. If we get beyond that, we go to level two, and we find what Jung called the personal unconscious. And by that he meant these uh, pri consist primarily of repressed material from your personal history, your childhood. And they don't normally come into the ego level of consciousness. At least they don't come directly in. They come in in disguised and veiled forms. And, in, and certainly that's true in dreams. But they also actually will show up, uh, as Freud pointed out, in, in the ego level in things like Freudian slips. You ever, does everybody know what a Freudian slip is? Where you, you meant to say something, one thing, you said something else, and it's embarrassing. It sort of reveals something about yourself. And you go, ooh, and people look at you, right? <laughs> like a seminal idea? Hmm? Like a seminal idea? A seminal idea. Uh, as in semen, you mean? <laughs> yes, right, exactly. Uh, you say, yes, and Freud would have thought most of them are sexual in reference. Right. Uh, but whatever, they are signs that, uh, <laughs> from Freud's point of view, repressed material sort of breaking through. But we are not normally uh, aware of that. Normally, it's veiled to us. But, and this is where Jung uh, departed from Freud, uh, part of why he departed from Freud. If we, we can actually go through level two and we get to a deeper level that Jung called the collective unconscious. And the collective unconscious is full of archetypes. Uh, and archetypes are not personal. They don't come out of your personal history. They, uh, they are common to all of uh, humanity. It doesn't matter your culture. It doesn't matter what time. It doesn't matter what place. They are dramas, uh, symbols, figures, and so forth that have this universal sort of quality. And we're going to, again, say a little bit more about that in a moment. And then... Uh, this opens up into the last level, the fourth level, which is a pure consciousness, uh, infinite consciousness. This is why the, the, the borders sort of break off here. And this is, of course, the, the, from a mystic's point of view, the foundation, if we like, of all phenomena, all form, arises out of this vast ocean of pure consciousness. I mean, these are the forms of the consciousness. The consciousness itself has no form. 
and uh, so it, it's in that sense transcends even uh, the archetypes. And this, by the way, is experienced uh, by everyone uh, every night in dreamless sleep. When you go to sleep and no dreams are arising, uh, there's nothing there but pure consciousness. You don't remember it. You're not lucid about it for various reasons. But one of the reasons you don't remember it is because there's nothing there. I mean, there's nothing there in terms of form. And our attention isn't trained to recognize nothingness and what nothingness is. That's part of what a spiritual path does and what meditation does. And it is possible, by the way, to become lucid all through the night and to know you are you are pure consciousness through that process. It's also, uh, you can uh, experience this through uh, certain kinds of meditation, which bring you to samadhi. This is why samadhi is so highly valued in the uh, Hindu traditions particularly, because you get to a point through concentration where no form is arising in consciousness. There's just pure consciousness. So then why, do, why aren't we just totally aware of all this stuff all the time? I mean, why is this these lower levels than the ego level generally veil to us. And that's kind of our problem. That's what ignorance is. We ourselves are veiled to ourselves. Our true nature is veiled to us. And uh, it's like the sun, pure consciousness of the sun with clouds over it. And so when we uh, progress on a spiritual path, as the clouds are removed, our dreams start to uh, be more transparent to these deeper levels and layers and uh, images and, and uh, forms and figures start to emerge, if you like, uh, rise to the surface, or really it's not so much rise to the surface, we're penetrating down into deeper um, levels of, of the psyche. But the reason those veils are there is because of fear and aversion. We are afraid of these lower levels of what's in them. And this is well known on a spiritual path. Uh, for most people on a spiritual path, if the practices are being successful, one of the signs is that you'll begin to experience fear, uh, particularly in meditation. Uh, when you start to leave the ego level, it can feel like uh, the world's dissolving or you can feel like it's uh, approaching death. That's why in many traditions, the, the big breakthrough is a, spirit, a kind of spiritual death. That's the metaphor for it. Uh, but we actually are afraid of what's below. And, our, and this is where modern psychology really comes in. Our immediate fear is of things that happened in our own past, which the psyche has repressed. So we don't want to go mucking around there because it means re-encountering things that terrified us as children. That's this whole idea of repression uh, that Freud was really the one who came up with and... Uh, and almost all modern psychologists recognize that. So before we can even get to these levels, we have to uh, face ourselves. Now, in all uh, mystical traditions, this is very important on a spiritual path. It's not like modern psychology pulled a rabbit out of the hat, but they have a more interesting and perhaps uh, in some ways useful way of talking about this, particularly this idea the problem is we just aren't conscious of this stuff. So somehow you have to bring it to consciousness. In other traditions, uh, the, the real, from a mystical point of view, the real value of things like confession, contrition, examining yourself is to start to face uh, yourself, how you behave, what, who you really are, all those things about yourself you don't like and would rather just uh, ignore. And in a spiritual path, one of the first things you have to do is turn around and examine your own behavior. Look at yourself, do you see what I mean? And how you really feel and think about things. 
And for a lot of people, that's a big shock. They think, oh, they're such a wonderful, kind person. And they start watching their own thought process carefully, and they see how much their mind is full of judgments and uh, bitterness and resentments and so forth. It's a kind of a rough period on a spiritual path, but in all traditions, mystical traditions, that's necessary. So this is the first level to get through, this personal unconscious, and it depends on how much and how severe the repression is. Uh, if, it, if there's a lot of repression and severe, this is where psychotherapy can be a big aid. You may have a, a wider agenda than just uncovering this much of uh, your personal unconscious, but uh, that can be a great aid. Then uh, we go down below that, and the archetypal level, uh, that's when that starts to open up. And uh, then archetypes start to manifest in dreams. So how do we then distinguish mundane, everyday, ordinary dreams from spiritual dreams? Well, one of the things is, if you start paying attention to your own dreams, and if you, if you have any sort of memory of dreams, You'll notice that, for instance, mundane dreams, uh, one of the most obvious kind are those that reflect work problems. When I was a film editor, you know, all night long, I dream about editing these films over and over and cutting in different ways. And of course, I go to work and I'd be editing films. I couldn't get away from it. But you can, I think it's pretty obvious, you can think of the psyche as processing these work problems that you're really concerned with at that level. The uh, other, uh, more common, perhaps, uh, way to look at it is when the dreams uh, are, are full of very personal symbolism. Now we're going to, you'll understand what that means more when we talk more about archetypes, but the symbols are not immediately clear. Sometimes people dream about weird sorts of things like something like it's a, a half car and half motorcycle. In fact, you couldn't even draw it on a, on a, a diagram, but you know what I mean? Or it's a, it's a refrigerator that's an airplane or something like that. Has anybody ever dreamed, you know, this, well, these are uh, very much a product of your more, more local imagination. Your psyche's putting together little things from your own personal history and creating a whole language of symbols out of that. And then uh, the dreams are very jumbled, they're murky, they're usually very hard to remember. Uh, they don't have a quality of, uh, of being very real, being very vivid, being very numinous. So uh, those sorts of dreams, they can be chock full of very important stuff for you personally, but they usually require a real depth analysis, a real therapy where you can sit down with somebody and really go through and, and oh, so you can use free association techniques to find out what these symbols mean and so forth. Now, Spiritual dreams, then, uh, can range, and these are not hard and fast lines here. Spiritual dreams, especially in the beginning, will have a lot of mixed content. There will be this personal content in there, but you'll start to see spiritual themes or spiritual symbols or archetypal symbols will start to be mixed in with them. They'll start to emerge, so to speak. That's it's sort of like, again, they're, they're either you can think of they're coming up or, or you're tapping into deeper levels of the psyche at night, your dreams are. So they can be mixed or they can be primarily archetypal dreams where the content is very little personal in the sense that it has to do with your personal history. It has to do with your personal, your walking the path, but it's giving you uh, more cosmic sorts of uh instructions, advice, uh, showing you things that are 
of universal importance that would apply to most people walking a spiritual path. They'll apply to what's going on with you at that particular moment. And then finally, you can have what are almost pure archetypal dreams. Jung called them great dreams, big dreams. Uh, when you wake up from them, you feel like not that you're waking into the real world, but you're, you're coming down. This world seems more murky and uh, more vague from the dream world. The dream world, if it's a, really a big dream, is really sharp, really vivid. Uh, and usually if you have a big dream, uh, a great dream in this sense, it'll be life-changing. You will uh, know that you have to respond to this dream in some way. If we can say, generally speaking, the more archetypal the content, the more vivid and also the more memorable the dream will be. So a spiritual interpretation of dreams, or spiritual interpretations of dreams, really rests on trying to sort out what is the spiritual content from the everyday content. Unless, of course, I said you're in a therapy situation or whatever. And because the spiritual content will shed light more specifically on the spiritual obstacles you're facing. Now, again, I say these overlap an awful lot. A lot of stuff will go on in a dream that you may never understand what it's all about, but you can still get value out of a dream spiritually by trying to focus in on that spiritual content. So in that sense, I just want to make clear, spiritual interpretation of dreams or spiritual work with dreams is not a substitute for psychotherapeutic work with dreams. And I personally, when I do dream interpretation, lead these workshops, I am not fulfilling the role of a psychotherapist. So let's get to this mystery about this archetypal content, since this is really what's defining the difference between spiritual and personal dreams, if you like. What are archetypes? Well, Carl Jung, the famous psychologist, is the one who coined this term for psychological use. And this is the way he uh, arrived at this. Of course, as a psychotherapist, uh, an analyst, he had lots of patients and they did a lot of dreams. In those days, dream was very, very important, you know. And uh, after, you know, listening to literally thousands of dreams, he began to realize that a lot of the things the patients were dreaming about were like uh, images or symbols or figures from mythology. And a lot of these patients had never, didn't know anything about mythology. They weren't steeped in traditions, you know, in where the, the local mythology was known. Uh, and they hadn't studied it in, in school, they hadn't gone to school and studied mythology, but still they were having these dreams where these, uh, these things were coming up. And repeatedly. And then he also began to, uh, he got interested in mythology and stuff, and he began to compare mythologies and folk tales and things like that from various cultures, and he found that there were these same themes and same basic symbols and images were being repeated from culture to culture to culture. Now, they're always clothed in the, if, you, if we like, in the dress of the local culture. But the role they serve, the function that they're performing, is the same from culture to culture. And there are enough symbols and stuff that are cross-culture that you recognize, oh, here's the same archetype popping up here. So this is why he posited of this collective unconsciousness. This didn't come from anybody's personal experience. It was like it's in this great uh, pool of, uh, of the human psyche. And, it, and it's transpersonal, it's transcultural, it just starts popping up. 
And if you uh, if you do yourself, you can go out and read a lot of mythology. And that, by the way, that's a great way to, if you really want to get the dream work, a great preparation for that. Just start reading myths from everywhere as much as possible. Enjoy yourself. Don't even bother making a study of it. It'll start to become obvious to you what's being repeated. And this is what we mean by archetypal content in a dream. It's like you're dreaming a myth. A myth that's a little bit tailored to your situation and to, to how you think. But nevertheless, you are literally re-dreaming some myth. And people can say, oh, that's such and such a story. That's Thesis and the Minotaur, you know. I'm going to give you uh, one example here of an archetype and how this uh, has, can be noticed in various uh, different uh, venues. Uh, one of the big ones for a spiritual path is the feminine guide. It's a woman who arrives at crucial times on a spiritual path. Uh, this happens, I think, although I haven't made a study of this, more frequently with men, but it's not confined to men. And men, by the way, can have male guides and women can have female guides and so forth. But it's just uh, two things. That we know more about men, men's spiritual paths because they were recorded more. They were considered more important than women. So there's more material about that, for, for one thing. Uh, and, and there's been more study of that. But... Uh, we already heard Socrates mention how this woman showed up in his dream dressed in white to tell him he had two more days. Now, it's, she's showing up on the eve of his death, so this isn't just some unimportant little thing, you know, where somebody shows up and says, oh, uh, you know, uh, your house is going uh, uh, to close, the deal's going to close in two more days. Now, this is right at a big transition in his life that she appears. Now, listen to Igujarjuk. It's a Caribbean, uh, Caribbean, a caribou Eskimo <laughs> shaman. And he's telling about the vision quest he went on, appealing to the goddess Pinga to make him a shaman. And he goes through uh, a very rigorous 30-day <coughs> fast before he goes on this quest. And then his mentor takes him out and builds him an ice a house and he has to go in this ice house he's got no food or water and he's in there and he's supposed to concentrate on pinga and he says only towards the end of the 30 days did a helping spirit come to me a lovely and beautiful helping spirit whom i had never thought of it was a white woman she came to me whilst i had collapsed exhausted and was sleeping but i still saw her lifelike hovering over me and from that day, I could not close my eyes or dream without seeing her. She came to me from Pinga, and she was a sign that Pinga was now, had now noticed me and would give me powers that would make me a shaman. So here's this feminine guide figure, white, who, who appears to him at this crucial moment, this crisis in his life, right? How many of you read, uh, ever read Dante, the Divine Comedy, the three volumes you have? Oh. And you've read it? Uh -huh. Not the whole thing. Not the whole thing. Uh, a, a very famous Christian um, poem of the Middle Ages. And Dante takes, uh, takes us on a tour of the other realms. Uh, the hell realm, uh, purgatory, and then paradise. And Virgil, who is the famous Roman poet, is his guide through the hell realms and, and through um, uh, purgatory. And purgatory is as depicted as a mountain. And when he gets to the top of the mountain, and he's ready now to go on to the tour of paradise, Virgil, so to speak, uh, passes the baton to who? Beatrice. A woman in white, uh, in a white veil, crowned with an olive boughs. 
And Beatrice then becomes his guide through the, the realms of paradise, and she's the one who takes him on farther. The Tibetan uh, Longchenpa, famous Tibetan Dzogchen practice, practitioner, early in his life, had the following happen to him. In the fifth month of an eighth of an eight-month dark retreat, a dark retreat is where you go into a cave, there's no light, the cave's sort of sealed up. In the fifth month of an eight-month dark retreat at a cave at Gaima Chogla, he had a vision at dawn. He was standing on the sandy bank of a river from which he could see some hills. He heard the sound of singing accompanied by music. Looking in the direction of the sound, he saw a beautiful 16-year-old woman attired in brocade, ornamented with gold and turquoise, and wearing a golden veil over her face. She was riding a horse with a leather saddle and bells. He held on to the end of her dress and prayed, O noble lady, please accept me with your kindness. She put her crown of precious jewels on his head and said, from now on, I shall always bestow my blessings upon you and grant you powers. So here we have uh, Socrates, this woman in white, showing up to give him some important information. Uh, we have uh, this, uh, this feminine guide appearing to this Eskimo shaman who's in white, who's giving him powers so he can become a shaman. We have in uh, the Divine Comedy this great epic poem. Uh, the 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 crucial guide, the one who guides Dante, is a uh, a, a woman who's veiled and who has this uh, crown of uh, olive boughs. And then a, a Tibetan uh, lama from Tibet. Uh, these are totally different cultures, totally different traditions. Now let me read you from a little-known mystic of this century contemporary American, who had the following dream, which was the start of his spiritual path, by the way, the initiatory dream, the, 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 the one that changed his life completely around. I was walking through a gentle meadow with no particular destination in mind when the meadow turned into foothills. It's still easygoing and pleasant, but then gradually I realize I'm climbing the steep slope of a mountain. This is harder work, and soon I find myself scaling a sheer granite cliff, fingers and feet clutching at cracks and ice holes, a fierce wind whipping around my body. I look down and am terrified to see the earth thousands of feet below. For a moment I freeze, but an inner voice urges me to keep going. After all, it reasons, a fall from here or higher up will kill you just the same. Dreams have a little sense of humor too, by the way, so I <laughs> With great difficulty, I struggle on towards the top, and at last I make it. I look out over a breathtaking landscape spread at my feet. The seven continents and seven seas extend before my eyes to a 360-degree horizon. Both the sun and the moon are simultaneously visible in the sky, one half of which is night, the other day, and a sacred hush envelops the world. Suddenly, I become aware of a woman standing at my side, wearing a helmet. She hands me a sword and says, This sword is as bright as the moon and as sharp as the stars, and with it you can cut through to the heart of truth. I take the sword and hold it in the palm of my hand, and it feels powerful and good. Then I turn to the woman and ask, Who are you? Don't you know, she laughs gently. I am Athena, and I have been with you always. Now, 
this is the same woman appearing. You see, you see what the, this idea of an archetype is? Throughout history, to all these different people. Athena is not a, a product of my personal uh, unconscious. Now, it is interesting, when I was young, a little child, my father used to tell me stories from the Odyssey, which is a, you know, Homer's poem, and uh, Odysseus, the hero of the Odyssey, his goddess was Athena, who was a guide for him. So when Athena comes to me, she doesn't appear as Beatrice, uh, she doesn't appear as um, an emissary from Pinga, she appears as Athena. She has that, wears that much clothing of something I'm familiar with. But nevertheless, she comes and she is serving the same function. So this is just one example of why uh, Jung became convinced that there were these archetypes and what the whole, what the, uh, an archetype means. And that's what you start, you want to look for in dreams, and that's what starts to make them spiritual. Now, archetypes may not just be a figure like a feminine guy. As I said, they may be themes, they may be symbols of other sorts of things, but they have more or less this universal quality about them. If you want to interpret uh, spiritual dreams, you have to learn the language of dreams. And the language is different from our normal language. It is, first of all, structurally primarily dramatic. That is, they're stories, like dramas. Uh, <laughs> and they are uh, speak in terms of symbols. So dream interpretation is much more like literary interpretation. It's more of an art form. It's not a science. And we've got to be very careful about this. And, you know, if you go down to Paralange or some of these bookstores, they'll sell you dream dictionaries where you, you know, you dream about a bed. So you look that up and it says, oh, well, this is a sexual reference. It doesn't work that way. There are certain things we're going to be talking about, a few of these, that have, generally speaking, these meanings, but they always have to be placed in the context of the rest of the dream. You can't just go to some dream dictionary and pick these things out. And the thing about symbols is, they themselves often have multiple and even seemingly contradictory meanings. So a symbol doesn't just have one meaning. It can have different meanings depending uh, at the time it's showing up in a person's life and so forth. But also, more importantly, symbols can combine two things that we normally think of as mutually exclusive. For instance, just to give you one example, the uh, wonderful image of the Buddha sitting under the Bodhi tree. Now, this is a, a symbol of two things. One, tremendous serenity, tremendous calm, but tremendous power, tremendous resolve. You know, the Buddha under the Bodhisattva had gotten to that point in his life where he vowed to sit here until he was enlightened and he would not be moved by anything. We don't usually think of strength and serenity as sort of going together, but the symbol presents it to us. It embodies that. And this is something else about symbols. The symbol embodies the qualities that the symbol is expressing, as opposed to a sign, for instance. A sign stands for. So if I say the word man, or I write M-A-N on a blackboard, that's a sign. The word has nothing to do, doesn't embody man, either, either as a male human being or, or man in general. In, uh, in many of the uh, pictograph languages, like in Chinese, I believe, man is something like this. It's like a little stick figure. 
And that starts to be a symbol. It's showing you. It's embodying what it is standing for. Do you see what I mean? And really powerful symbols embody all these qualities, compress them all into one. The crucifix is a tremendously powerful symbol, a Christian crucifix. I mean, it combines suffering, it combines love, it combines bottomless compassion for the world. It just has all these things, plus all the intellectual things you can read into it. It's the crucifixion of the ego on the cross. It's the balanced cross with four directions. I mean, it is one of the most powerful symbols that, uh, uh, that has ever arisen out of the collective unconscious. That's where it comes from. So symbols, again, you, it's, it's dangerous to be too analytic when you're looking at dreams. You have to get the feel of them. It's, it's really more of an art form. This is all a preface because now I'm going to discuss just some common meanings of various things that could show up in your dreams as an example of what you might look for if you're interested in looking at your dreams. So let's look at some common, more personal symbols. In other words, they come more the ego level, but they're, they're starting to be more universal. In other words, at least, at least I've found, if you're living in this culture, brought up in this culture, and you're dreaming these things, chances are this is what it's referring to. House. Generally speaking, if you dream about a house, particularly a house you live in or have lived in the past, the house generally symbolizes the structure of the psyche. For instance, if you are rummaging around in the basement, that's generally that you're rummaging around at the level of the personal unconscious. If you, if you go down to the basement and you open a door and you find it opens into this great underground cavern with mysterious ancient wall paintings, you've probably tapped into the collective unconscious in the dream. You see how this works? Uh, kitchens are usually symbols of spiritual or emotional nourishment. The kitchen's where you go for food. It's the heart of the house, especially more primitive households. So you might be trying to get to the kitchen. You can't get to the kitchen. Or you might be into the kitchen, but uh, uh, you, know, you can't find anything to eat. Just the location is telling you something, the location in the house. Uh, undiscovered rooms. You're wandering through a house, from your house to your house, and you open a door, and there's this whole room that you never knew existed. It's like aspects of yourself that you're beginning to un uh, unveil, that are becoming uh, accessible to you. So these are just some meanings that a house can be, but it it's usually has to do with yourself, going around exploring yourself as conceived as a kind of a structure. The other great symbol in this culture for self is a car, particularly, or some personal vehicle. A bike, it could be a car, a station wagon, something you own, a truck. That is uh, a symbol of your life as it's moving through time. What's going on in your life through time? So it's a little bit different than the structure, right? So uh, you might be driving your car and you might have, uh, be stuck in sand and you're spinning your wheels. Well, you can read that as something's stuck in your life at this point. You're spinning your wheels. You're not going anywhere. You can start to make those sorts of associations without... Again, uh, trying to be too analytic and to match everything up one for one. It doesn't work that way. You get the feel, though, of what's going on. Places. If you're dreaming about places from the past, houses you grew up in or towns that you lived in and so forth, it usually means the dream is trying to bring your attention back to the past to show you something in the past that relates to what's going on now. 
A common one is that you had some pattern in the past, you were behaving in a certain way, and now you're about to repeat it. And the dream is trying to say, wait a minute, don't, don't do that again. Don't relive that, you know? And often dreams, they just roam through your life. They can go way back to childhood, jump up to your teenage years, go back and forth. They're marvelous that way. If you dream about hotels, bus terminals, airline terminals, and so forth, usually it's a, a, a transition period in your life. It's a way station, you know? You don't live in hotels. Most people don't, or bus stations or whatever. By the way, let me interject right here. All these things change if you happen to be a bus driver for instance. Do you know what I mean? Uh, then you'll have a different... No, then it'll become much more, much more personal things. It still will be significant, but that will skew it. It will, it will take it, make it less common. If you dream that you're in a school or a university or a college or some place like that, a classroom, ah, take note. This is a teaching dream of some sort. It may not be profound spiritual teaching, but the, the venue of the dream is telling you uh, what the dream is about. They're trying to teach you something here. Other people in dreams. Uh, if you are uh, dreaming about a strong contrasexual uh, figure, that is, if you're a male, you're dreaming about a woman, or a, or a woman, you're dreaming about a man, and, and not just any old man or woman, but someone you're in some sort of very powerful relationship to, that's usually what Jung called your anima or animus. It's your, uh, if you're a man, your uh, feminine side, your woman, your masculine side. That's way oversimplifying it, but just to give you an idea. And usually that's a side we don't acknowledge, um, we don't allow expression and so forth. So if, if for instance, somebody's um, a woman, if you're a guy and she's following around, she's trying to get your attention, that's something to look at. Maybe your feminine side is trying to get your attention. Now, again, I, I, I'm warning you, I, we're, we have just a little time to talk here, so I'm oversimplifying. I'm just trying to give you hints, though, of how you can start to look at these things. Um, friends. You dream about some friend, someone you know in waking life, and there's, you know, whatever is going on, you're traveling with them or whatever. One of the things you can do is, when you wake up and you look at the dream, think, what, what are the qualities about that friend I admire or despise or don't like much? But friends, usually in that setting, represent some qualities. Some quality that the dream is trying to present to you through the image of a friend. Uh, child raising. If you have a newborn infant, usually it's some, uh, something inside you, some potential that is birthing, that requires uh, some sort of nourishing or whatever. And the attitude in the dream uh, can reflect back to you what your attitude is towards your own development. Enemies, assassins, people trying to kill you, to rob you, uh, monsters, boogeymen, all those sorts of things that are after you personally. Almost always is a shadow side, what uh, again Jung called the shadow. And that is almost always represents some fairly severely repressed side. Something there, uh, anger, fury, or rage, or whatever, something that's trying to uh, express itself. And this is one of the clearest, and one way to work with this, by the way, particularly if it's recurrent, if you dream this often, uh, you can go to sleep at night and you can really make a resolve, say, wait a minute, let me confront this figure and say, why, do you, why are you angry? Why are you trying to kill me? What have I done to you? And by 
continuing practice this way, you can actually learn to do that in the dream, and things can change around enormously. So those are more personal, but quite universal. Some of the things you can look for in, in dreams. And some common archetypal symbols. Now, uh, landscapes often have a, have a strong archetypal content. Frozen landscapes, great wastelands, ice, particularly if there's ice and snow and stuff like that, almost always represent that you've, you're, you're hitting at that repressed level here. Something is frozen. It's on ice. We, our, our everyday language expresses this, you know, put something on ice, put it on hold. Uh, we, we save things by sticking the, in the refrigerator and the freezer, you know, uh, they don't change. They're frozen. They're stuck away. Uh, deserts represent uh, usually some sort of emotional barrenness or spiritual barrenness. Wandering through a desert looking for water because water, the opposite image, is emotional and spiritual life, nourishment. Great archetypal symbol. Uh, baptism and the Christian and Jewish traditions. Uh, the water the, uh, is the great symbol of the Tao and the Taoist tradition. You know, Lao Tzu always compares the Tao to water. Uh, in all traditions, you find water as this symbol uh, of, of uh, uh, emotional but ultimately spiritual nourishment. Uh, any bodies of water, streams, lakes that you're following, oceans are a big one. When you get the ocean, boy, you're, you're deep in here facing the unconscious, opening out into that infinite pure consciousness. Uh, mountains, uh, often spiritual ascent. I read you my dream, climbing this mountain, it's a symbol of spiritual ascent. In Dante, climbing the mountain of purgatory, it's a symbol of spiritual ascent. Um, Seashore is a, is a wonderful, if you ever dream about being at the seashore, seashore is land's end. Seashore is where the waking, known, conventional world meets the great unconscious and the infinite depths of the spiritual world. So if events are going on uh, on the seashore, uh, look at that carefully and try and get the feel of that, what's going on here, you know. Uh, you are hovering between two worlds when you are on the seashore. Animals. Animals have uh, are ancient archetypal symbols. Um, bears, bulls, lions, things like that often represent this real primordial uh, power, this uh, power of life and power of death, again, combined into one. That's why they're, they're fearsome, but they're also majestic. We, we respond to animals in life like that. If you've ever seen, you know, a big animal in the wild, I mean, it has just that. It's a little bit scary, but it's a little bit... Uh, awesome, you know, powers of life and death and often powers of transformation. In Eskimo shamanic cultures, the way you become a shaman is you're taken out to a, an island and you go there for a vision quest and the bear comes and he eats you up. And when he chomps through your heart, cracks open your heart, oh, ancient, wonderful archetypal symbol, anything of breaking open the heart, piercing the heart. Jesus' side is pierced with the lance and the cross. You see how these, they're so rich. Uh, when the bear chomps your heart, then you are awakened, you are enlightened, you become a shaman. But you have to face the bear. This is very interesting, you see, how these symbols work. I mean, you could say the bear represents the whole, uh, everything down below here. Everything you're afraid of is what you have to face and what you have to surrender to. And that's the whole message in that one little story of how this shaman becomes a shaman. Birds, often uh, symbols of spiritual ascent and descent. 
you know, the shaman, especially Siberian shamans, all their costumes are made out of bird feathers and symbols of birds and bird headdresses. The dove that comes down to Jesus when he's baptized, the symbol of spiritual descent, the, the grace, the blessings descending. Fish, especially big ones in the sea, if you're a big lake and you see these big shadowy things, they're somewhat like the bear and uh, bull figures, but more mysterious. They're the contents uh, of the unconscious. And, and to get down there is to get down with, and swim with a big fish and, again, maybe be devoured, eaten, and so forth. Um, one of the greatest is snakes. Snake represents transformation because uh, snakes you know, shed their skin. And so uh, people before, a, before the Industrial Age uh, thought that snakes were mortal. They never actually died. They would just leave their old bodies behind. They went on shedding their skin. So shedding your skin, getting a new skin is all symbol of death and rebirth, transformation in that sense. And they're also the symbol of the imagination, which is transformative. And it always is very ambiguous. For instance, the snake is the one who tempted Eve through imagination, creating these dreams that she and Adam, if they ate this fruit, they would be like gods and all that, you know, and they would know uh, the, the knowledge of good and evil and so forth. But the snake is also then the symbol of the power of Kundalini. It's Shakti's power. Shakti is the feminine aspect of Shiva, which rises up through the spine, up through the lower regions, and performs this tremendous transformative uh, function. So these archetypes aren't if you start looking in terms of are they good or are they bad, you've missed the boat. They're neither good nor bad. It's your relationship to them that is either positive or destructive. And that's the whole point of them, is to find your relationship to them. And then finally here, archetypal events. Certain events are, are pretty archetypal. One of the most common that I've run across in these dream workshops is natural disasters. Floods, uh, huge forest fires. Uh, earthquakes and mountains falling down and stuff. And they're almost uh, always a precognitive dream that big changes are coming up in your life that will feel like they are literally earth-shattering. And very often in these dreams, either the dream stops before the tidal wave arrives because you just can't handle it, or if you continue dreaming or if, if it just happens that way, the tidal wave arrives and it sweeps everything away, but you survive. And often dreams perform this function. They're saying to you, listen, I know it's going to look bad. Things are going to be changing. The world's going to be turning upside down. You're going to feel like you can't survive it. But I'm showing you in, through this dream that you can. And dreams are, uh, often encourage us that way and uh, fortify us, if you like. Uh, and then finally, of course, if gods or goddesses or or uh, angels, or your guru, or teachers, or famous spiritual masters show up in your dream, pay close attention. Because that is pure archetype. And whatever they have to say is going to be valuable. Uh, I have never heard of a dream where anybody was misled by a spiritual teacher in a dream. That's very interesting. Including people who have dreamed about me. And when they tell me what I said in a situation, I recognize it. Yeah, that's right. That's my teaching. Even uh, one woman, early in the center's history, she came, she was very ambivalent about the center and what we were doing and all that. And uh, she had this dream where I was a carny barker, you know, a, <laughs> you know, in a carnival and outside a tent. And I was saying, you know, uh, come on in, come on in. And this, this wild carnival show is going on. 
and uh, I forgot what, what the display was. But the thing is, I was telling her it was going to cost her, like, I don't know, $100 or something. And she kept saying, this is too much, this is too much. And I kept saying, yeah, but that's what it's going to cost. Come on in, come on in. And what was the thing that stood out, you see, was how much it was going to cost. And she didn't come in, and shortly afterwards, she, she left the center, too. You see, it was actually quite a veiled dream, but I was telling the truth, and she wasn't ready for that. You know, I mean, this, this isn't a criticism, right? She just, you know, for whatever reason, wasn't ready. And so she made a wise decision, and a wise decision in relation to the center. So, if you want to learn more about these archetypes, I said, steep yourself in mythology. And then you have to learn about the structure of dreams. Now, as I said, dreams are dramatic. They tell stories. They're not quite as clear-cut and worked out, usually, as the stories you see when you go to the movies or you go to a play or something. But essentially, it's the same sort of structure. And one of the reasons I'm pretty good a dream uh, interpreter is because I, you know... Uh, had a career in Hollywood where we dealt with drama and taking scripts apart and putting them together and constructing stories. I know how they work from the inside out. And I see this in dreams. So this has been very helpful. That's another good thing. Go take a class in dramatic structure if you want to know about dreams. But the, some of the things that you can ask yourself, for instance, what was my task? What was my goal in the dream? Were you trying to get somewhere? Were you trying to get something? Were you trying to accomplish something? Were you trying to escape from something? So that, that's the plot line, just like it, when you go see a movie, there's, you know, the, the hero or the heroine has something they're trying to accomplish. And then what are the obstacles? You're trying to get someplace and uh, all the roads uh, are dead ends. That's kind of an obvious one, you know. You're trying to get someplace and you're crossing a lake and you're slipping and sliding on this frozen lake or, you know. So then you start to... Think, well, what is the spiritual significance of the goal? And then how do the obstacles fit into that? What do these obstacles represent on my spiritual path? Watch for recurrent symbols and themes. You didn't get it the first time, the dream will come back again. You didn't get it again, the dream will come back. Nightmares, whether they're recurrent or not, is really like uh, somebody really urgently trying to get your attention. You know, if you, you're not paying attention, they send off the fire alarm. That gets your attention. If you have a nightmare, it's very important to pay attention to nightmares and not just blow them off. As your path progresses, as you do more practice, you will start having more unusual sorts of dreams. For instance, you might start dreaming dreams within dreams. So you're dreaming, and in the dream you fall asleep, and then you dream. And it usually means you're tapping into, penetrating into deeper levels of consciousness. Uh, precognitive dreams sounds very wooey and uh, I must say before I got on a spiritual path if anybody told me they're precognitive dreams I was sure yeah you're hanging out too much with those new agey wooies uh, but I've had them and this is you'll find uh, in many spiritual traditions this is reported and it's not just exaggeration it's not just uh, some sort of fantasy this consciousness is Transtemporal, ultimately, and the dream consciousness has this sense of what is coming, what is not, what is you know ahead. It doesn't mean everything's locked into place like an Einstein's picture of the world, but it's a sense of how events are developing. But I must warn you, again, you can't always be too literal. I did once have a dream that my brother, who lived in Chicago at the time, and I was living in L.A., got run over by a truck. 
just that. And I woke up, and it was so vivid and so clear that uh, it bothered me all day long. And finally, uh, the next day, so I called. I said, are you okay? And he said, yeah, I'm fine. I said, oh. So it probably had a symbolic value, which I missed. I took it literally, and then I went and acted on it. So uh, be careful. The significance of the dream could be symbolic. It doesn't mean just because you dreamed somebody was run over by a truck, they literally got run over by a truck. And then the most important dreams that we're to watch out for are teaching dreams. And they usually you'll know it's a teaching dream. I mean, it was specifically now talking about spiritual teaching. Because a god, goddess, guru, teacher, somebody like that shows up to teach you. And you can have very different kinds of teachings in, in teaching dreams. You can get specific instructions to change practices. For instance, Namakai Norbu in this book, um, The Crystal and the Way of Light, talks about how he was in Italy. And he left Tibet. He was living in Italy. And, his, and he left his, his master back in Tibet. And he dreams one night that his master tells him to go climb this mountain behind, he's back in Tibet in a dream, behind this village, and find this cave. And there's this famous Dzogchen master, Jigmed Limba. And he'll find him in this cave and to talk to him. So he goes and he climbs the mountain and he goes to the cave and he sees the little kid in the cave. And he, he says, well, this can't be Jingmed, you know. Uh, and, but he starts talking to the kid and the kid starts motioning to sit down and things like that. And he gets more and more impressed with this kid. And finally the kid pulls out this little scroll and starts reading this tantra. And then he recognizes that this is a particular practice, a very advanced practice, uh, that you ha and you have to do other practices before you can go on to this practice. And then he wakes up back in Italy, and he realizes that the teaching here is that he's been doing this other preliminary practice long enough. It's time for him to move on to this advanced practice. So here he got a teaching just like he had an in-flesh teacher who he could talk to and say, well, this is the practice I'm doing. And the, and the teacher says, well, now it's time for you to move on. He got it from a dream and he moved on and everything went fine. So you can get this kind of very specific instruction. You can also get general advice. This is what uh, Miriam Abdun, uh, Ibn Arabi's wife, uh, said about a dream she had. I have seen in my sleep someone whom I have never seen in the flesh but who appears to me in moments of ecstasy. He asked me whether I was aspiring to the way, that's the Sufi path, to which I replied that I was, but that I didn't know by what means to arrive at it. He then told me that I would come to it through five things, trust, certainty, patience, resolution, and veracity. Now, all those sound nice. I mean, that, this is true. Trust, certainty, patience, all those things. But in terms of the teaching, these are the five things that she should really focus on. And then finally, really profound. I mean, profound that they should be written down in books for everybody. Teachings can come through dreams. And I'll tell you one very short one that is tremendously profound that actually, coincidentally, happened to someone many of you know. This is uh, Tom McFarlane, who is a... Uh, uh, has been a, a member of the center in the past and comes on retreats and very close to us here. And he dreamed about Dr. Wolf one night. Dr. Wolf was my teacher and uh, a Janana yogi. And one night he woke up, Tom woke up in this state of dreamless sleep or almost dreamless sleep. There was no dream going on, but it was just this blackness. 
and he was rather uh, frightened. And I've forgotten now whether he asked this question, like, what is truth, or, or this voice just boomed out. But in any case, Dr. Wolf's voice boomed out of this blackness. The truth is that which cannot be denied. Now, you think about this for a minute. I just, I'm not going to go into a whole, I could give a whole talk about that, but just think about how profound this is. For instance, uh, you could say God exists. Now that can be denied. I can deny it. God doesn't exist. Uh, you could say God doesn't exist. I can deny that too. I can say, no, God exists. So the truth is neither of those statements. Or any statement that you can think of that can be denied. Or anything you can think of that can be denied. We're not talking about it can be reasonably denied or anything like that. It, the teaching is just the truth is that which cannot be denied. It is so beautifully put. It, it should go down with Nargajuna's four-cornered arguments and stuff. You remember that sometime. If you ever want to think you, you're enlightened, you've found the truth. If, you can, if it can in any way be denied, it's not. The truth is that which cannot be denied. So here is a, a really tremendously profound teaching coming through a dream. And by the way, Tom McFarlane, although he read a lot of Doc's, Dr. Wolf's works and studied him, never met him. Dr. Wolf died before... Uh, Tom McFarlane came on the scene, so we're actually getting a, t a teaching from a dead teacher in a dream. Interesting. What you need to encourage spiritual dreams, or any dreams, is really the four great principles. Pay attention, a commitment, practice detachment, and practice surrender. You can think of dreams as coming from the big dreamer in the uh, ocean. And just like uh, you with a friend of yours, the dreamer is giving advice. Now, if you give advice to a friend of yours and your friend totally ignores you, doesn't even listen to you, is chatting with other people, you stop giving advice. You're not paying any attention. But if your friend turns to you and says, oh, that's interesting, that encourages you to give more advice. And if your friend starts acting on your advice, then that really encourages you to be forthcoming with the advice. The same principle is at work with dreams. If you totally ignore them, uh, they'll generally ignore you. The dreamer will ignore you. You'll get these just really sort of dreams that process your daily problems and whatnot. Commitment. You have to uh, make a commitment to establish a relationship with your dreams. One of the most important things to do is to get yourself a notebook or a tape recorder, keep it by your bed, and record whatever dreams you have during that night. In the beginning, try to record everything if you can. Some night you do this and you start getting reams of dreams, then you pick out what is the most important. But you try to record as much as you can. Later, as you get used to working with your dreams, you get to know what's more significant, what's less significant. You don't have to record everything. But to get that pump flowing, it's like priming the pump. And you have to practice detachment here because record the dreams you like and the dreams you dislike. And it's very interesting about how we are with our dreams, you know. You wake up and you have this beautiful dream where the angel came to visit you and it was all light and choir and music. And oh, yes, you want to remember that one, hang on to that one. But the disturbing dream with the assassin trying to do you in or where you're making some horrible mistakes or something, that one you don't want to look at and you want to forget about. But those are often more important than the other ones. Uh, so you want to record and pay attention to... Uh, 
whatever the dream uh, is that's presenting itself to you, whether you like it or not, that's practicing detachment. And then finally, you have to surrender in the sense that this, and this is a major difference between spiritual approach to dreams and a lot of, anyway, psychotherapeutic approach to dreams. In the psychotherapeutic approach to dreams, the ego is who you really are. And the idea is we're going to analyze our dreams, pay attention to our dreams to see how they can enhance the ego, to see they, how they can help you deal with life, deal with people, get along in the world and all that. From a spiritual point of view, it's not about getting anything for the ego. It's about penetrating down here to your true self. And very often that means that what's, what's good for you on a spiritual path is not good for the ego. So it, you could take this as a slogan. Instead of asking what the dream can do for you, ask what you can do for the dream. How can you serve the dream? The dream is your teacher. The dream is ultimately God manifesting in these forms. And if you take an approach that here I am, show me what I have to do, show me how I can serve, and I will serve, that's the surrender part of working with dreams, looking at them from a spiritual approach. So in this talk, I just tried to give you some idea of the difference between spiritual dreams and mundane dreams and how you might recognize spiritual dreams and then how you might uh, try to work with them a little bit. As I said, I can only just perhaps awaken your curiosity or your interest in this because you, there's just no way in one talk you can explore all the ramifications of this. And truly speaking, like everything else on a spiritual path, the practice is what's important. You start paying attention to your dreams. You start writing them down. And you st establish a relationship with your dreams. And if out of that, through that, they will tell you uh, what's important and what isn't. So, are there any questions or comments? It's been kind of a long morning here, hasn't it? I was wondering why, <clears throat> if I can talk about Tom's dream, why... Um, <clears throat> This uh, Dr. Wolf saying, uh, what is he saying? The truth is that which cannot be denied. Why was that so effective on the dream state, and uh, why perhaps couldn't it be effective in the real state? Oh, it certainly is. This is the point of the telling the story is is precisely that what came that it does not matter whether it came through a dream or whether it was given at a lecture or whatever a great and profound statement appeared. And then it matters that it came from this person or this entity. Not, not necessarily, actually. If Tom said, you know, I, he didn't, but if he said, you know, I made that up, actually it's something I thought up, but I thought nobody's gonna listen to me. I'll contribute <laughs> to Dr. Wolf. It would still be, it would still be great. By the way, I say that because this has happened in the great traditions. Tons of sutras attributed to Buddha that weren't written by the Buddha or spoken by the Buddha. They were spoken by disciples. Uh, and this was not considered plagiarism, it was considered uh, both uh, service and modesty. I mean, first you didn't put yourself forward and you would get people would listen to it if, if you put it in the mouth of the Buddha. Well, what about images and things that come up during a meditation? Are they considered dreams? They can be. Again, when you meditate, the same thing happens here is you start to access deeper levels of consciousness. So, for instance, for a lot of people, what will come up in an early meditation practice is a lot of personal stuff. 
memories of your childhood, things you've forgotten long ago. This is not uncommon that this all starts to come up. Um, and then later you can start to have archetypal images, symbols coming up, and that's what visions are. You read about mystics who have visions. In particular, I had a strange experience a few years ago during meditation. It was something, uh, information started to scroll like a computer, mm -hmm. scroll, but it was all in a foreign language. I didn't even recognize the language. It looked like it might have been, um, it had symbols somewhat like Greek. Mm -hmm. And then suddenly one word was highlighted. And in that language, mm -hmm. did you... Can you reproduce the word at all? No, but I did call a um, um, professor at Seneca State, uh, sort of language, and, uh -huh. and I related the experience to her and described it. And she thought it sounded like um, a word that was the um, aha experience, or I found it, or Eureka something, or something ah. like that. But I was awake during it. Wasn't yeah. a dream. It was just a well, again, we didn't get to this, but after you start analyzing your dreams, interpreting your dreams, starting to see them spiritually, then a very interesting thing happens. You start to turn around and you start to look at your waking life in exactly the same way. So it doesn't matter whether you're asleep or not. So I would not ask the question, ultimately, was I asleep? Where did it come from? I would ask the question, what is its significance to you? Maybe the, the dreamer is trying to tell me that there's very important information contained in, in something I don't yet understand. So maybe a call to not literally go study Greek, but to learn the language of the mystics or learn the language of dreams better or something like that. I think sometimes dreams tantalize us. They want to suck us in deeper. I had a friend who once had a dream that uh, it's a long dream, but the short version is she goes into this magnificent temple and she goes deeper and deeper into the temple and she finally gets the inner sanctum and in the inner sanctum there's the book of life sitting on a pedestal and she goes in there and they open the book of life and she looks at it and she wakes up and it drove her bananas i mean it was such a totally archetypal numinous vivid dream but she didn't get a chance to read this very important book uh, my interpretation was the dream was saying, hey, there is something really important here. Come work, you know what I mean? You can find something here. It's not that easy that you can just do this, but there is something in there. If you will go look for it, eventually you will be able to read the dream of life. That was my interpretation. So maybe it's something like that. It's like a, teasing you a little bit, you know. See, that's just a possibility. The way you ultimately judge whether you've come up with a right interpretation or not is in your heart you feel it or not. It has nothing to do with how much it makes sense intellectually. You know at a very deep level when, you, when you're at least on the right track, you know, you get that sense. Well, before you all fall asleep here. <laughs> it has been a long morning, so let's bring the formal part of it to a close. And as Mike said, you're welcome to stay and have some tea and Chat, check out the library, and until we see you again, peace to you all.